Aloha and welcome to Connection to the Cosmos with your host, me, Dr. Lisa Thompson, where I have out of this world conversations with extraordinary people. And today I have best-selling author David Edward on, who's going to be talking about Atlantis, but we're going to bring him on in just a moment. So I just have a few quick announcements. First, if you are watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe to the channel. And I would love your comments, your feedback. If you're watching here on Facebook, please comment. We'll get back to you on whatever you have. And if you're listening on any of the podcast outlets, thank you so much. Now, I have a new thing that I am offering on my website. I just created a new free gift, and this is a 20-minute meditative journey to meet your galactic guides, and it has an accompanying PDF journaling prompt that goes with it. So you can get that on my website at mysticmanta.com or drlisajthompson.com. And it's right at the top of the page. So don't miss out on that. Take advantage of that deal. And if you're here visiting in, in Hawaii, come see me on one of my Big Island UFO tours. So remember, we are Hawaii Island, the Big Island, not Oahu. People get us really confused with that. And come experience the night sky in a whole new way. And also stay tuned for some upcoming classes that I have on calling in the energy of the galactics. So without further ado, I'm going to bring David on to the screen. Hello. Lisa, <laughs> how are you? I'm doing amazing. Let me tell people just a little more about you. So David Edward is a best-selling author. After being discharged from the Army, he became a business entrepreneur. He has developed POS systems, video games, and virtual reality software. He's currently the author of a six-book thriller series, and his most recent book is on Atlantis. And the title of that book is Atlantis Solved, The Final Definitive Proof. So welcome, David, and I cannot wait to talk to you about Atlantis. <laughs> I think, yeah, and I think everything you said is true. So it was a very accurate uh, opening. Thank you very much. Yes, well, you know, you provided. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, okay, so Atlantis can be kind of an interesting topic for people. Um, you know, there are the skeptics or all that. But so before we get into what your book is about and the research that you've done for that, what I would love for you to share with the audience is kind of your background in terms of how you grew up. Like, were you always into this stuff or your parents into this stuff or what was your spiritual or religious or other background? Yeah, you know, I had I had a very interesting childhood. I grew up with my mom. Um, that my mom and my dad decided at some point that uh, living in separate states was better than living together. Uh, and my mom was about as uninterested in Atlantis or crystals or spirituality or anything as you can imagine. Uh, now, God bless the woman. I mean, she got up every day and worked, you know, you know, all of that, you know, that story. And she raised two boys, which I know were very hard. Um, and we certainly didn't make it easy on her. Uh, but she wasn't into this. But I was very much a nerd uh, growing up and a nerd through high school. And I'm, I'm still a nerd, I'm sure. I don't even if, if do we even still have nerds? The vocabulary has, has, has escaped me. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I am. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a callback to that. So, you know, as a kid, what are you going to do? You know, in the 70s that's when I grew up. Uh, mm -hmm. So I read Eric Von Danigan's Fingerprints of the Gods, and I and I read a lot of the books, you know, that the kind of the fringe kooky books. I watched yeah. Jacques Cousteau, and you know what what was available on TV. Not like today. Today there's endless content 
Um, right. Back then there wasn't. So any content that came out about Atlantis or lost civilizations or even just ancient Greece, um, I was all over. And that, um, well, let's call it an interest or a, a, a passion. A passion would be overstating it a little bit as I grew up. I, I was interested in it, but I wasn't like I am now spending almost all my time on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so anyway, so yeah, then I, I, um, I kind of, I guess I, I outgrew it, I guess would be the word. And then when I got to high school and stuff, I still liked the space. So I went back and I read all the, um, uh, a lot of the Greek literature, not all of it, but a lot of the Greek literature. So I had read Plato and Herodotus and all the things that you need to be knowledgeable in to, mm -hmm. to search for Atlantis. I had already read, I'd read him as a, as a teenager. So I had a pretty good background. Um, and then after high school, I went to college uh, mm -hmm. very briefly. Um, okay. And then the college and I both decided uh, that, uh, you know, maybe there's other things both of us could do. Um, so I was like, all right, well, this isn't too good. I, you know, I, I knew I had to organize myself. So I put myself in the army. I mean, I, I was kind of an overweight, uh, soft little guy. And I'm like, what's, what's the scariest thing I could think of? And so I joined the infantry, well, 11 Bravo, 11 Bang Bang, they call it. Um, although you take this test when you go in and they, they identified that I had whatever characteristics they were looking for. Uh, so they moved me over. They didn't recruit me. This isn't a movie. Uh, they simply administratively moved me over from uh, infantry training to counterintelligence training. And I became a counterintelligence agent, the best job I've ever had in my life. And I will ever have probably. Okay. Um, so we did all kinds of cool investigations and I was in, and then I got sent to Panama. And when I was in Panama, I got to go look at all the Mayan and, and the Inca, um, you know, ruins and stuff like on vacation. And I even took, I took in, they have this thing called a jungle survival course. And I took it in Panama. It's 10 days. Uh, and you learn to survive in the jungle. At the end, to graduate, they lop the head off a boa constrictor. And then everyone has to drink and suck the blood out of the body. And that's how you graduate. Okay. Um, which they don't, it's an urban legend. You don't think they're going to do it. And it's the very last thing they do. And then you have a choice. So the choice is, you've just been through 10 days of heck. Do I do this, you know, or not anyway, but when I got done with that, I went into the Dorian Gap on vacation, um, which is kind of a magical deep jungle place. It's, it sits on the border between Colombia and Panama okay. and there, there are petroglyphs and things I saw there that kind of got me reinterested in all the ancient history. Mm -hmm. um, and then about a year ago, I, it just worked out. I had the time. So I really started jumping in. That was a very long explanation. I know, but okay, that's, no, that's what no, you get. Yeah. So no, that's perfect. Well, um, very interesting about the counterintelligence officer because my husband, his dad, was actually counterintelligence in the Air Force. So okay, yeah, yep. so you're kind of like the spy or the right. Of the well, you're you're the opposite. You're you're the you're the you're the preventive measure for the spies. So okay. what counterintelligence does? We don't we're not the CIA. We don't go out and infiltrate the enemy. We pretend like we're the enemy looking back at our, our forces, our troop, our movements, and the things we're doing. And we try and see if there are any holes, or if there's anything okay. they can figure out, because we know they're looking. Mm -hmm. So we know we need to look. And, and the example I always give is um, on a lot of bases, the night before their big field deployments, where one member of the family is gone for a week or two, uh, there would be more uh, than average uh, PX activity, the grocery store. All okay. the families will go to the grocery store. Yeah. So if I, and, you know, I was in so long ago, we were worried about the Russians, although I guess that's coming back around. Um, yeah. But we know they're, they're watching us. So they know if they see everyone go to the grocery store on Wednesday night, 
then they probably know there's a field deployment coming on Thursday. And, and of course, we don't if it were, if it's training, that's one thing, but we don't want to give that stuff away. So that's what a counterintelligence agent does. We do what they call bat battlefield counterintelligence, which is what I just described, looking back, you know, from a, from a hostility standpoint. And then also the spy stuff, which they call HUMIT, which is human intelligence collection. Uh, but again, we're not spying on the enemy. We're seeing if we can turn or infiltrate. We're constantly probing and testing our people and our sources um, to make sure that, you know, we want to find the problem before it's exploited. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. So, know, yeah. no, it is. Okay. <laughs> so growing up, you know, so I was really into the Greek stuff as well and yeah. history. Um, I ended up becoming a biologist instead. But Nice. I, but so I'm... So it was only a year ago that you dove into Atlantis. Yeah, look, I I, I just I, I published my first book in February of 2021 because of the pandemic. What are you gonna do? And I've written 48 books since then. So when I, mean, I do when I do something, you know, I'm okay, like obsessive compulsive. Yeah. Wow. You're a little bit I haven't written that many, but I've written <laughs> so okay. So then what kind of research were you doing with Atlantis and what did you, what have you been discovering? Well, look, we found some amazing stuff. I got started, I got reintroduced to Atlantis on YouTube. Uh, mm -hmm. This guy named Jimmy Corsetti, he has a channel called Bright Insight. And I always try and bring this up because he's absolutely the one that got me back into this. Now, now he has a very particular view. I don't necessarily agree with, with everything that he says, mm -hmm. but the big thing he did is he had found a place in Africa that sure does look like it fits the descriptions that Plato gives of the capital city. And it was intriguing enough to me to where I wanted, I, I wanted to verify it myself. And, and Jimmy, who I've talked to, he's a brilliant, wonderful guy, much more, more, more known on the subject than I am, but he got a couple things wrong. He didn't have the background that I have to kind of bring to it. Not that he has a bad background. He was in the military too, but his, his education is more towards marketing, mine's more towards engineering, that kind of stuff. Um, okay. So we got back into it, but then I started looking and, you know, you, you want to talk conspiracies and, and, and the what what I wound up discovering is that there is I'm going to call it a corporate infrastructure, a corporate overlay to our education system and specifically to the people that are the stewards of history, the anthropologists and the archaeologists and all those people. Yeah. And there's there's and we'll call it a narrative, although. We, you know, we live in a world where there's also a political conversation. So these words have been hijacked. So don't take these words to mean the political word, even though the word is absolutely correct, a narrative. But and the narrative in this case being there's kind of the story that we tell ourselves through academia about our past, right? Yes. And anyone who's at all curious, Lisa, you're curious. I'm curious. The people listening are curious. If you find something interesting and you go do your own research, what you were told almost always falls apart instantly instantly. And so looking for Atlantis, that's what I've discovered. And let me tell you, we've made a big discovery and we'll, I'll break it here. I, I've not told anyone this, but um, uh, they, on January 5th, um, the uh, Cambridge University Press mm -hmm. published mm -hmm. research that was conducted by this guy named something Bacon. He's, he's a, he, he looked at all the caves. You've seen the cave art, like you see the picture of the cows and, you know, the, yeah. the people on the wall and chasing elephants or mammoths or whatever. So right. they looked at all those caves, mostly in Europe, but the caves are all over the world. And what they discovered is there's actually a writing system embedded in those, in those diagrams. And this fed, and I, at the time I'm looking for Atlantis and I'm looking at it uh, from a kingdom standpoint, because one of the things the dialogues tell us is that it was actually 10 places. We always look for one place, the capital, but it was actually 10 places. So I'm trying hmm. to figure out if it's, if it's really a kingdom, 
do they have boats? How do they how do they get around? You know, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, were they able to talk to each other? I mean, if I travel from Africa to South America, do we wave? What do we do? How, how does all of that work? So I'm trying to do this for real. Yeah. And this article came out about the caves. And what the basically what it comes down to is um, on, on they, they looked at 400 different caves and they found that there's dots, lines, and then lines that look like a Y to us. They, they go up and then they converge at the top right. like that. So yeah. um, look like a Y. We're all familiar with Ys. And it turns out what it is is that the, these lines would be on the pictures of the animals. So let's say they drew a picture of this is thing called an auroch, which it's like a pre-cow. It's like a, it's like an ox cow before they were cows. They're gone now, but that that was their version of the cow. And so if you go into the cave, you see this picture of the cow, and you look around, what you'll see is you'll see there's lines on it, and then some there's some of those Ys, and you count the number of lines. And that's the month that they enter mating season, starting at the summer solstice. Okay. And then you find in the sequence where the Y is, and that tells you when their when their birthing season starts. So you have their mating season and their birthing season. And they catalog like 10 or 15 different species of animals across 400 caves and thousands of, of drawings. And this is real. So if you if right now, if you go to Google and you type in what's the oldest, what's the oldest written language or whatever, uh, it'll tell you that it was 3600 BCE in Sumeria, right? Well, these these cave arts with mm -hmm. the animals, they go yeah. back to 37,000 BC, 37,000. OK, they started drawing in 42. But so I mean, I'm a curious fella as we're learning, as I keep rambling on here. So I'm like, OK, that's pretty cool. That's amazing, actually. So then I said, well, what's what's the oldest thing we have that someone wrote on? And it turns out there's this bone in Israel. And it was uncovered as part of an excavation not that long ago, like within the past uh, 10, 20 years. Okay. Um, they think it's one of these aurochs, cows, and mm -hmm. it's got, but it's got these scratches on it. And they didn't know. They don't know. They found this, like I said, 10, 20 years ago. They, right. And they don't know what this, they're like, well, were they decorating it? You know, what are these scratches? So I brought the picture up and I looked at this writing system and it's the writing system. And it's okay. not even like it's close or interpretive. It is yeah. exactly it. It's exactly it. But this this bone is one hundred and twenty thousand years old. So what we just found, and we we I found it. We found this. This isn't a, a university that yeah. we found this this cave writing system is at least one hundred and twenty thousand years old. And this is in Israel. They found most of these caves in Europe. They, they're not that close together. I mean, you you could walk it, but it's not like you know, it's not a day trip. You know, right. yeah. So in other words, if we're looking for Atlantis, we just proved as far back as 120,000 years, people were cataloging animals. But here's the exciting part. All of these megalithic structures that we found, you know, we see them everywhere. Stonehenge, all that stuff. And a lot of the um, petroglyphs, the spirals yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. They're, and we all, we know this, they're kind of designed to track the solstices and the equinoxes, right? We see that everywhere. Anyway, if you watch Ancient Aliens, and I've seen everyone twice. Me too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But it's yeah. always, and, and it comes down to, they, they, they aligned it from the ground to the sky, we don't know why. Maybe it was religion. And then if it's ancient aliens, they'll say, or aliens, and they'll say ancient alien theorists agree, right? But but they don't know. But that's the end. That's the end. They say religion, you know, a mystic. But that's not the end of anything. That doesn't explain why people did something, right? The, the, we, we found out why they did it. The, the, you got to keep track of the stars. You got to know when the summer solstice is for this animal cataloging language writing system to work. And it's been around for at least 120,000 years. So associatively, that means that the ability to track the solstices has been around at least 120,000 years, if not longer, because this new writing system is dependent on that knowledge. 
And that's the kind of stuff we're finding. The other thing we found when it comes to Atlantis, you know, if it if it was, I don't I don't come up that it was a global empire like a lot of people. You, you had mentioned what Lemuria is that what you said to me? Okay, yeah. So before we got on, I was talking about Lemuria. Yeah, Lemuria is the Pacific kind of counterpart to Atlantis. Right. right. And it, I have certain understanding about what the different civilizations were, like how they lived, and so I'm curious. Yeah. So go yeah. Ahead. So the big thing with Atlantis, we have the Platonic dialogues that come from this guy named Plato. And he wrote them in 360 BC. Uh, this, the conversations he's recording took place be before that, primarily by this guy named uh, Krantor. One of the things in the dialogues that, that becomes clear is whatever else the Atlanteans were doing, they were doing it around the Mediterranean, around Egypt, around Africa, around that part of Europe. Yes. Um, so I went into this, and I'm, I, I am taking a very scientific approach, and, and my theory is we can't just blow up the level of technology. Like discovering writing, that's fine like I just talked about, but, but we can see it. it. It's like, it's, it's, it's very pragmatic and we can start to understand um, why they did it. Uh, but I didn't want to blow, I couldn't blow the whole, you can't blow the whole technology thing up. So I've lost whatever I, I've lost train. I've lost my train of thought. I have no idea what I'm talking about now. Well, okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I was halfway through something, but. Uh... Okay. Well, so let's try to like tease through some of this. So, yeah. So first of all, in terms of location, so, um, Contrary to what a lot of the Atlantis people, researchers and writers and, and you know, educators, um, what they have shared generally is that it was one location and you're saying it was probably multiple locations because it was a kingdom or 10 locations. No. Nope. One I'm, not saying, I'm not saying probably. I'm saying it, it, is. Oh, I'm it not, is. I'm not, I don't use couching language no. for the stuff that I know. And, then, and, okay. and and one of the assumptions I have is that we're going to treat the platonic dialogues as actual history. Okay. Okay. And he, and he tells us, he, he tells us this, he tells us that there were 10 provinces, the capital and nine provinces ruled by five sets of twins. And he gives us their names. So if that's what he says, then I'm going to okay. assume that what he meant. Okay. So being though that he wrote that in 360 BC, mm -hmm. So then where is that information coming from? Chain of custody, right? Chain of custody is what, is what you're looking for. So the chain of custody goes as follows. Um, he tells us that this guy named Solon, who's act, he's actually, who Plato's actually related to um, through, through several generations, uh, this guy named Solon, and Solon we know is a real historical uh, figure. He yeah. is arguably the person in Greece who introduced the idea of democracy. And I said that very carefully because it's a very complicated topic, but it seems like it was his idea. And, you know, like maybe we should try this. Now, as he was developing that idea, what he did is he traveled the known world and he went to the capitals, um, you know, and he talked to people because he's trying to figure out, is there a better way to do this? Okay. At the time, the capital of Egypt was called Saïs, and it's in the Western Nile Delta. It's a very okay. uh, famous location at the at, at Saïs is the temple of Neith, and Neith is the Egyptian creator goddess. Matter of fact, the temple of Neith is what they call it. It, it existed pre-dynastic, so it existed before um, the Egyptian dynasties formed. That mm -hmm. statement that sounds kind of cool, but it's kind of complicated because Egypt was around for a long time, and then in 2900 BC, since we kind of think maybe that's when they figured out how to write stuff down. That's when they kind of said, well, if they're writing stuff down, they're a real kingdom. So they say the first dynasty is in 2900 BC. Yeah, yeah you're laughing. I know, but you got to explain it, right? I mean, 
because they go way, way back before that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm getting I'm, I'll get you there. I'll get you all the way there. So yeah. uh so yeah, so Atlantis is destroyed. So the the priests tell us that um what they're telling Solon is their ancient history that took place nine thousand years before right now, before when they're telling them. So they're okay. telling them in six hundred BC and nine thousand years before six hundred BC would be ninety six hundred BC, yeah. which I know you're nodding your head. Yes, yeah, so it's a magical date. Right. I mean, it, it's a very magical date. But so 9600 B.C. is the end of the last ice age, younger dryers, all kinds of stuff we can talk about. We know something really bad happened. So if Plato's just making this up and he says he's not and he's in no other dialogue, does he say explicitly that he's not making it up? He, you know, he tells you. Um, right. But if he is making it up to, to nail that date is is ridiculous. It's just incredible. But anyway, so that's 9600 B.C. Then we have Herodotus who is known as the, the father of history. He wrote, the, he wrote something called the histories. He's the first Greek, first person in the Western tradition to try and be a historian kind of for real. Um, and he traveled the world and he traveled about a hundred years before, a little more than hundred years before Plato is, is writing the dialogues. And he went to Egypt and, and his is the first third of the book is basically a travelogue. And this is the histories by Herodotus. And he's just basically saying, here's the world as we know, here's, here's, where, here's where everything is. And in the second two thirds, he tells you what's going on. So he goes to Egypt and then he goes to Libya and he's, he's telling you, then I, you know, you travel west from Egypt for 10 days, nothing happens. And 10 more days, now you're in Libya. Then you go 10 more days and you run into these people called the Atlanteans. And they're the remnants of some society. Uh, they, they don't dream. They won't eat uh, meat, you know, or anything that was alive. They live on top of salt piles. They spend their times cursing the sun and they don't dream. Okay, interesting. So, so now we have some geography, right? Uh, so we have a physical location. But what's interesting is that part of Libya is adjacent to the Western Nile. And we see in that part of Libya, where he says the Atlanteans are, we see the cult of Neith form. So Neith is the creator Egyptian goddess. We see that cult start to form as far back as 6,000 BC. So that's 8,000 years ago. Right. That's, right? That's, so, and, and, and from that, then into the Western Nile Delta, the Temple of Neith, we have on the walls, on the pillars, we have the story of Atlantis. So basically, the first thing they wrote down was the story of Atlantis. It's the first, right? It's, it's at the first temple, pre-dynastic, and we can trace the, the topology from Western Africa to Northern Africa to uh, the Temple of Neith. Okay. And uh, people don't know this. There's this guy named Krantor. So Plato came and went. Plato is not famous for Atlantis. He's famous for being a good philosopher, writing about Socrates. And in his time, he, you know, he kind of made his money. Uh, he created something called the Academy, like the first university, the first you know big school you went to. Right. And all, all that's well and good. But when he died, someone had to take it over. And two people were up for the job, this guy named Aristotle and this guy named Krantor. Now, Aristotle, we've all heard of. Um, in Aristotle, probably because he wasn't as big a Plato fan as you probably would need to be to succeed him, didn't get the job. Don't know what the politics of it were, but he didn't get the job. So he kind of pouted off. He wrote some, he kind of started slamming Plato because he was mad. And he went north to Macedonia. Then he, he wound up tutoring Alexander the Great. And he had an amazing career. He might be smarter than any of us, you know, that kind of stuff. This guy, Krantor, who was kind of a fan of Plato. Um, but this the whole Atlantean thing, because uh, uh, Aristotle had actually attacked Pla Plato's writing about Atlantis. So Krantor went back to Saïs, this well-documented, well-known, and verified that the story was in fact on those pillars. And he also verified the measurements and the names, you know, all this stuff. So it was kind of like an independent check. Okay. So, so we have, a, we have, a, we have a, a perfect chain of custody 
for the story of Atlantis. Well, one of the criticisms of it is that it's some kind of oral tradition. Because the last thing we have, this guy Solon, when he went and talked to the priest, he wrote it all down in his notes. He says he wrote it down in his notes, which makes sense, right? You would write this stuff down. Then he went home, back to Greece. And then he had a, a son, or he had a brother who had a son named Krantor. And then there's a succession of Krantors. There's actually three different Krantors. But the middle Krantor, who becomes Krantor the grandfather, because he's the grandfather to the third Krantor, who became Krantor the tyrant, who's part of the 30 tyrants in Athens, and he was like a bad dude. But that middle guy is the one talking in the dialogue called called uh, Critias. I'm sorry, I said Krantor. Critias. Um, and he says he still possesses the writings of Solon, and he studied them in preparation for this conversation. So it's it's a direct hand down through writing, not through an oral tradition. And, and we know the lineage from where it was destroyed, how it made its way into the uh, the culture where it was written down, actually it was written in stone, and then how it transmitted from there to the dialogues, which is how we get it today. Okay, so then from your research that you have done, do we have a time frame of when Atlantis as a culture started? Well, that's what I was. Did I, we were talking about that bone, right? The 120,000 year old bone. So, yeah. So I think, so what we find, what we find with the kingdom of Atlantis is, so there's this guy, um, Thor Herendahl, who in 1968, 1970, he built a, a boat, a reed boat. It's called a Thanupa boat. And they still use these on Lake Titicaca. And there's pictures of them all over Egypt. Just all, you see all those boats and rafts. You see them you know, rowing. They're, they're all these reed boats. And what he did is he built it and then he sailed it uh, from Morocco down the coast of Africa, across the Atlantic ocean, uh, into, um, uh, Venezuela and, you know, into the Bahamas. Okay. Okay. Well, that read technology is a technology that would have been available to people mm -hmm. during the last ice age, during this time period that we're talking about. And it's not even disputed that it would have been. So we think that, and that and what he discovered is those currents. So these things are rafts; they're not boats. No one's rowing this thing, and the wind is only barely helping. It's a raft, and it floats on the currents. And there is a current stream that runs from the northern coast of Africa down that the west coast, and then straight across, and then over into um, the Bahamas. So we think that's kind of the circle. And then there's there's a season when you can come back, and you can come back from basically the Bimini Road. Now we know why there's a Bimini Road there because that's where they departed from. You go up to uh, Bermuda and then there is a current that takes you to the Azor Islands. And then there is another current that about three months later will take you to uh, Southern Spain or actually North. There's, uh, you can go North up into what was Doggerland at the time. Um, so it's, 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 it's the, the, they had the technology to actually have a global trading. Uh, yeah. It wouldn't be an empire. That, that that that's too strong for how we think about it today. But um, society, let's call it. Okay. So I have seen shows where they're trying to figure out what the Bimini Road was for. So I'm glad yeah. that you brought that up of what your research has shown. And now, and they are they have been trying to put the location, like trying to figure out where the location is. So you're saying Africa, north, like well, northwest Africa, over to Egypt. I'm I'm saying it's a system. So, the, so if there's 10 places we, we, we find, it's pretty much, this is why it says, we, we call it the fool's choice. We have to avoid the fool's choice. And the fool's choice is that you have to, when, when uh, given A or B, you have to pick either A or B. Yeah. Well, both of them. Well, right. Yeah. I, was, I was a fat kid growing up. I know this with desserts. Like, no, 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 I want both of them. Don't tell me we pick chocolate or vanilla, right? So, so if, there, if Atlantis was 10 places, 
yeah, the capital is important, and I, I, we know, and we know where the capital. We we can work that into it. But what's really important is to, is to try and find if if there's ten places that make sense. And when we did this analysis, and we looked at the currents, we looked at what they call the tidal forces. We look at the solstices. We look at um, sailing logs. You know, because we have all the way back to the 1500s. Okay. Uh, and and what we find is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely doable on these Thanupa boats uh, okay. to sail from Africa to the Caribbean and back. And, and then what they do is they create these, I call them hot spots, they're these rub spots. So they become points on the planet that these tides take you to. So if you're going to travel using these tides, there's a very specific place you have to leave from. So they mm. have to get to it on a certain time. And then there's a very specific place you end up. And okay. when we look at all of those places, they're all the places that people think might have been Atlantis. Because you, you get uh, the Seuss Mesa and you get the South Spain and you get Doggerland and you get the Rishat structure, you get the Canary Islands, you get Cape Verde, you get something going on uh, near Venezuela that no one talks about, although I've, I've actually reached out, they have a cultural group there. And you get Aslan and, you know, Mexico and all of that stuff. Uh, and you, then you get the Bimini Road because that is, it just turns out the way the currents work. See, mm -hmm. the Bimini Road is the exact location on the planet that you leave from to follow okay. the currents through the Bermuda yeah. Triangle and over to the Azores. There okay. isn't another place to do it from. Okay. And we have the Bimini Road. And each of these places is like that. Even Stonehenge starts to make sense because when you look at Doggerland and you look at um, the, the trails and how they would have moved about, Stonehenge becomes a central gathering point. It's measuring the solstices. So now you know when it's time to go on the trip or when people will be showing up from the other side of the trip. So yeah, okay. all makes okay. sense. Yeah. So now Atlantis as a culture like from a spiritual perspective and from people that I know that remember their, we're going to call them past lives. It's actually parallel live experiences being in Atlantis. Um, we have, you know, all of these different stories that people are remembering or sharing. So from your research perspective, um, because so what I understand about it is that they were highly technological, not as spiritual. And that is actually one of the reasons why they destroyed themselves. But based on our conversation before we got on, you're like, yeah, okay, well, you know. Well, so uh, my point of view is I'm taking the platonic dialogues literally and I'm, okay. and I'm, I'm pushing away. I'm not not pushing away, but I'm being much more skeptical to other things. Now I might get to the end of this, and that might not hold. That's the whole point: is, is can we come up with a set of assumptions and hold them um, all the way through? What what the dialogues tell us that the Atlanteans were good at is they were very good at agriculture, exceptionally good at agriculture, and they seem to be very good at organizing themselves. Uh, one of the things famously they did, they've got all these provinces, right? We got ten ten rulers: one's a king, the rest are princes. Well, they have some rules. One of the rules is they can't fight each other. They don't, they can't, they, you know, they don't attack each other. The other is if any of them are attacked, all nine others come to their defense. Hmm. Well, well, this is 9600 BCE. It's in a, it's in a dialogue written in 30, in 360 BCE. They invented NATO. They, they invented NATO 10,000 years ago. That's advanced, right? That, that's very advanced. Yeah. Now, Plato doesn't say they have nuclear submarines, right? We talked about, so. I, and I, I haven't found one yet in in in, in my searching. Um, okay. What I do think, I think that we're dealing with people who lived very differently from us, and I do think they were much more in rhythm to the world and all of these things. I know we project that back as a virtue. I don't think 
culturally it was a virtue. It just was how it was. It might be virtuous compared to how they might see how we're living and they might just be so horrified they can't stand it. Um, but I think that was just, I don't think they thought about it. I think that's just how it was. Um, and then when you get into the geopolymers and the ability to make uh, stones and you start to find that everywhere too, you, you, what you start to look at, what you start to find is there's five or six key, I call them technologies because that's what they are. And then we have what we call technology transfer, right? So if, if they're building a pyramid in Egypt, now we see a pyramid in Mexico. And we've all been, and we don't know how to solve that, it, it, but they must be talking. If we look at what they were doing with Atlantis, there's not a lot of people that are able to make these trips. It, it's, it's, it's a long, difficult trip. Um, so I think they are transferring technology ideas. So, you know, hey, build this. Here's what it's for. Here's how we're doing it. But then the, the people that get that, they then have to figure most of it out by themselves. So I think that's why we see all of these things starting at the same time, but done just differently enough that it, it does, it's not a direct comparison. It's because they were exchanging ideas. I mentioned tracking the summer solstice. The big thing that, that we find all over the planet is that this spiral. That, have you seen that spiral? It's everywhere. It, it's, in, it's in New Mexico. It's we in, have it here in Hawaii in our petroglyphs. Yeah, no. It, and, and, and I mentioned that there were similarities. I think this Thanupa, this reed boat level of technology in riding the currents, I think if they're doing it in the Atlantic, then they're doing it in the Pacific too. And I have tangentially very quickly looked at how the currents run in the Pacific. And you yeah. basically would go from um, the West Coast, basically Peru-ish, and, and up into Mexico. And you come down that coast and then you head over, just like, you know, up to um, the Galapagos is too high. Then you have Easter Island is on that run. And then you can either hook back around and hit Hawaii or you would keep going over and you end up in what was probably Lemuria and all that stuff. So I, I think, again, they're doing the same things. It's just I, all I've got, I'm focused on the Atlantic side um, right. with, with Atlantis. Yeah. Okay. So then as a civilization, if from your perspective, because you're not finding evidence of the like mass, dis, ma weapons of mass destruction, we'll call them, of that, the supposed yeah. Atlantis destruction, then um, what ultimately would have caused the demise of that civilization from your research? Yeah, I, and I think I think civilization is too strong a term. I, I think a term more like like league. Um, I mean, because in my research, I'm I'm trying not to break. I'm trying to break as few rules, you know, that we know about our past as, as I can. So if I can project back to to, you know, basically what we know, um, mm -hmm. I, I think civilization becomes a very strong strong term. So yeah, so I would say league. And then what was it? What was the other part of the question? Okay. Well, I'm just curious. Yeah. What, what led to, Oh, well, how was it destroyed? Uh, yeah. So we, we, we find it. everywhere you look, everywhere you look, something happened that um, caused some type of tsunami event in the Atlantic that either that, that brought the water from the West to the East. What that was, I know I'm familiar with all the theories. I haven't Picked one to defend. I don't want to. I don't want to defend uh, Younger Dryer's ancient comet impact theory. So I'm looking for Atlantis. We can see something happen. We can see it everywhere, especially on the European coast and the African coast and that kind of stuff. Although we do see it in Mexico and um, in the Caribbean, but not not to the same degree. And it also does seem to be more pronounced where coastal regions uh, are along the Atlantic compared to like inside the Mediterranean. Um, you know, with the, you know, so, so something happened, something happened in the Atlantic. I, yeah. what I, my, if I had to pick a theory, yes. my theory would be that, um, something impacted the earth that caused the temperature to rise. 
but I don't think this was a devastating impact. Then when the temperature rose, the ice started melting and all that weight is shifting around. And the Atlantic Ridge is very thin. Um, some people have all kinds of theories about the Atlantic Ridge. I don't have any of those theories, but it's very thin. So with all that weight shifting around, it, 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 would, it would eventually jerk and something on the western side jerked up and created the tsunami heading to the eastern side. Comet impact, I don't know, I don't know what. I mean, did, was the earth tilted differently? I, I don't know any of that. But I know something happened, and that's all I need is the proof that something happened on the date that Plato gives us. Okay, got it. So then in terms of geographic area, and because one of the things that I personally have experienced from my own memories in other lives, we'll call it, hmm? is the that ancient Egypt is way like way older than the you know the typical Egypt that we know of. And so I'm curious with what you're talking about in terms of the geographic range of these different provinces of Atlantis, yeah. that if, in fact, ancient Egypt wasn't actually part of that. I think there's a lot of overlap in terms of, you know, what they even. OK, and here we're going to get into ancient alien theory. <laughs> That's OK. So, I love it. Okay, and so, you know, we have the gods and goddesses coming down, our ET um, family members. And um, so the Syrians and the Orions were a big part of that in terms of that ET culture coming down. And so we have them sharing information of agriculture, medicine, astronomy, um, built, helping give the technology to build the pyramids, the Sphinx, you know, all of these great structures. And so anyway, so based on where you've said that geographic ranges, it just, it, it makes sense that it's actually maybe overlapping or the same. No, kind of. Plato tells us, he tells us the Atlanteans conquered Egypt. He said, he says that they exhibited influence in the Mediterranean um, as far uh, as uh, Terrania, which is the name of the sea there, basically Italy and uh, Sicily and that kind of stuff. And then on the on, on the lower continent, uh, all the way down to, to Egypt. So okay. again, if Plato, again, if we're taking him literally, he says that the Atlanteans were there in Egypt. Okay. Um, uh, and, so did, well, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so did they make it as far as Turkey? Like, did they have any part in Gobekli Tepe? Well, look, well, here, you know, Gobekli Tepe is exactly the same time. In fact, it's not exactly the same time. It's the, it's the same day, right. right? And then we've got, what, the Karen Tepe? I don't know how to say it right. Yeah. They found other Tepes. Yeah, they um, and, mm -hmm. and they can actually start to see some of the uh, technological advancements in these older Tepes. But this it's massive and sprawling. I think, based upon my understanding of the dialogues, that whatever was going on there was was like a trading partner to the Atlanteans. But we okay. can't just, you know, one strategy would be to say in, anyone that was doing anything around 9600 BC was an Atlantean. Um, and I think that's what Graham Hancock does. And I, I'm understanding more why he does that. But I, I think we have to honor the regionality of this. Uh, I do think that what we're seeing from a technology standpoint uh, with Gobegle Tepe and those types of things, I think that is the exact technology level that it, the Atlanteans had. Um, it just makes complete sense. And that's and we see the remnants of that. Um, the, the 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 beautiful thing with the tepes is they were buried, so they just sat there. All these other places we're looking at in Europe and on the coasts and in the Bahamas, yeah. people have been living on it for for hundreds of thousands. Well, not for tens of thousands of years. Some of them hundred a hundred thousand years or more, mm -hmm. and they live on the same spot. So it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to go look under 
what, you know, a uh, hundred thousand years of people have done to find the oldest thing. And so what tends to happen when they date it, they tend to look on the top, they find something they knew a person did and they find the date for that because they can radiocarbon date it. And then they proclaim that's the date. I'll give you an example of that. There's this thing called the Sicilian Channel Monolith and it sits west and north of uh, Malta uh, and south of Sicily. And this is an area that is very interesting to the Atlantean story. What's also interesting is when you lower the water levels to the, the depths they were at of last ice age, mm -hmm. two peninsulas form uh, south of Sicily. On one of those peninsulas, which is now like 40 feet underwater or 60 feet underwater, sits a monolith that someone, someone built. Okay. Well, the only time that could have been built was when that ground was above water. The right. last day that that land was above water was about 8,000 BC. Okay. So what's the monolith? What date is the monolith dated to? 8,000 BC, the last day. It, but it couldn't have been built that day. It would have been a marshy disaster. Right. And, and that land was above water for thousands of years. But but they date it to the last day that 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 it could have been, that it was even possible to be made, which okay. in all our entire history is that way. They, they've compressed all of these dates way in. So in the beginning, you started talking about how, um, you know, anthropology and archaeology Okay, I mean, like some of these discoveries are pushing the bounds of what they're willing to accept, or it's like really trying to make them think outside the box. Same, and I'm a former evolutionary biologist, and I know that a lot of the things that I talk about, write about, and others do too, in terms of our human evolution and our interaction with the extraterrestrials, um, really is so outside of mainstream academia, which is one of the reasons why I had to leave it. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just curious, like for you, your experience of you're trying to stay within a certain realm of mainstream, it sounds like, or are, well, you, not, are you willing to push those? Uh, well, I'm willing to go anywhere. My theory is they these people are way too comfortable being wrong, but I'm not going to dismiss everything they've done. You know, so I mean, they're, they're, the, the, the thing that they don't do that we all as lay people want them to do is there is no hierarchy and there is no person who's like the steward of the Atlantis theory when it right. comes to academics. Right. What you have with academics is you have people that make it kind of above the Mendoza line who move into administration and don't do anything but make really good money. Um, and then you have the people below the Mendoza line who tend to wind up having to teach but they're so disconnected from everything. They're in their own little world. And all they can do is, is further and further specialize down into one thing. Cause it's, cause there's yeah. too many elbows on the, um, on the dance floor. Yeah. And if you're any good, you uh, write articles to get out of teaching. So yeah. the, the entire industry is set up that anyone, anyone is good gets promoted out. Uh, anyone who really wants to do the job does researching and anyone who doesn't really know what they're talking about winds up teaching. So these are the, these are the people telling us our history. Right. And, and they're terrified of change. They, they, they don't, they don't, right. Because they learned all this. And now, and now we come along and we say, now there's a new writing system on these cave arts. But right. we've been, we've been teaching that uh, they're symbolic and they're this and that. that. That can't be. That would mean I'd have to go revise lesson seven of my undergraduate. You know, no, screw that. No. And, and then, then you got, a, then you got 1500 no's because they don't want change. And that's just, that's, that's, look, I was, I mean, we talked about education. I'm glad, you know, I was the president of university uh, for a number of years. I, I, I've been, I was, I was the editor of one of these academic journals. I know that side of it. Um, and yeah. yeah, God bless you for getting out because, uh, and it's not the people's fault. See people, we live in a world where, oh, well, you're attacking them. They work hard and they're not paid well. 
I'm not attacking anybody. These they 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 are in a system that that sucks just as much for them as it does for us, and they can't say it because they'll be destroyed. But if we could change the system so that it actually worked, and so they weren't wrong all the time, ninety eight percent of them would would be clapping. But they're not going to take the hill with us. They can't risk it. They can't risk that we're wrong. Well, and that is actually a really interesting point because I can tell you when I was in graduate school and then doing my postdoc and then I was a professor. So there were a couple people that were like me that were very open-minded and willing to look at different evidence and not like being a zoologist, marine biologist, evolutionary biologist. That was my background. And I I fully believed in Sasquatch, mermaids, fairies, yeah. unicorns, like all of it. And I had, and all of my people in my, I went to University of Chicago and it was at the Field Museum. And they're all just like, how can you believe in that? We don't have any of that evidence. And I'm like, well, because I know that there are things that exist outside of our parameters. Yeah. And I'm willing to be open minded about what that is. And, yeah. and so then there were some people, even when quantum mechanics started becoming like really, a little more mainstream in terms of how quirky it is yeah. and and a lot of the spirituality that i had learned throughout my life quantum mechanics is the underlying principle of that spirituality and so i had a friend who was like you know that isn't real that isn't real and um his girlfriend at the time my roommate she's like you would be the ones burning galileo at the stake because you are so <laughs> narrow-minded and so you know like so being, yeah, so I just, I, I want the whole education system, the whole academia system, I believe needs to change significantly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's broken. And I don't think it always was broken. America, I think it used to be pretty oh. good. Um, yeah. I know, I can tell you when it broke. I, I was I was an administrator when it broke. It broke around 2006, 8, 9, because they started, because the, the students became customers and we started surveying them. And instructors had to get positive survey results from their students. Well, if you have to get positive survey results, you now you're not in charge. Now the students are in charge. And then with all the other cultural things that happen and people discovering if they have any kind of power, they, they're learning how to wield it. It means you can't teach anything. And really, it's hard to give bad grades. And you don't want your coursework to be too hard uh, because, you know, then you get negative, uh, you know, rate my professors. And then if you get negatives, the administration that doesn't know anything, all they know is they got a spreadsheet and your number popped up is yeah. low. He says the students don't like you. If mm -hmm. and our policies, if the students don't like you, you're not getting tenure. You're not, getting, you know. So make them like you. We'll see what the next, you know, group of surveys say. And, and and it all fell apart, right? They, and that was the same time the federal government took over student loans. Um, okay. So it used to be you go to a bank, or you could use your credit card or whatever. Now you can only go to the the federal government. So mm -hmm. between. You know, the, the integrity of the uh, education system was taken away from the instructors and it became a funding machine for, you know, go look at the go look at what they're building on college campuses. They're not building classrooms. They're building administrative buildings. What do all these people do? Hmm. What do they do? They're not teaching anything. What do they do? I mean, you know, I mean, I, mean, we, we, I, I ran a whole I think I we had like 5000 students and I had I had an administrative staff of like four people. It's not that hard. I, you know, okay, you took this class in second semester and you got a B. Good. What do you want to <laughs> take next? That's it. Uh, you know what I mean? But they got they got nothing but buildings anyway. Okay. I'm ranting. I, I'll, okay. I'll rant about anything. So. Okay. Well, yeah. and I just like the main thing that I just want to bring up because we're talking about something like Atlantis, which a lot of archaeologists would poo poo, right? They would be like, 
mm-hmm. there is no such thing as Atlantis, you know, because they will only go well, back. Some his- guy, I don't know who it is. Graham Hancock has been trying to get someone to debate him live, you know, someone from the, the academic side and some dude just finally agreed to do it and they're going to do it on Joe Rogan. I don't know the, um, I don't know when, uh, okay. but it's going to be interesting because it's just, uh, you know what? It's going to be interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, could be a shit show <laughs> or it could be really enlightening. Oh, I think, I think Hancock's simply going to mop the floor with the guy. Oh, well, and then- Yes, he knows his stuff. For well, sure. he knows his stuff. And then what happens, what always happens is later it'll be spun and dissected in little victories. And the guy will come up with his theory about what he was really saying and how he really, you know, it's like, whatever. Yeah. I almost, almost said a bad word. That's okay. But, yeah. You can say that on the show. Okay. Okay. Well, so now, because your book, Atlantis Solved, That Final Definitive Proof. Okay, well, so that's pretty finite in terms of like where do well, we go from there? <laughs> like, well, so so what the book does, and, and this I tell people, some many people are disappointed when they get the book. It, this is it's not a six hundred page diatribe like Graham Hancock writes. I'm actually working on that. the The book is a proof, and what what I did when I first got back into this. I was like everyone else, and I wanted to find the capital because I thought that's all there was to find. So okay. I just, you know, we, we mentioned how many books. I, you know, I, I, when I focus on something, I really focus on it. Yeah. So I took, I, I blew the whole thing apart, put it all back together. I presented on the book, and the book is a proof. It is a proof, and the assumption is if what Plato told us is true, here's okay. here's where it is. Here's the proof of it. Um, and then okay. I'm not going to tell you where it is because you got to buy and read the book. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, but, but then when I started making the videos, because what I found is I'm telling people this and it's not a, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of many answers and, mm-hmm. and it was like, yeah, whatever. And, and I'm having to defend against kind of the same stock criticisms. So I'm like, no, no, no I got to get my information out because we've, we've really done a lot of work and there's, there's a lot of detail. So that's what I'm doing on my new YouTube channel, a history yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell, tell, say the name again and tell them how to find that. Yeah. So it's on YouTube. And the way YouTube works is you go youtube.com forward slash the at sign. And then you type a history of all lowercase, all one word, a history of. And it takes you to YouTube. I feel like an old guy explaining email. I, I don't know if people know that's how it works or not. Uh, but I had to learn it. it I like I went there and I just like forward slash a history of without the little at sign. It just says error. Um, but yeah, I've got, I've got like 30 videos up. I'm doing one or two a week. Um, and they're really well received. And what I'm doing there is uh, painstakingly going through this Atlantis thing from the top to the bottom. And we have just discovered some amazing things. I'm showing all the proof so that, you know, people can make up their own mind. And then if you get caught up with the videos with me, I, I, I'm very active with the messages. And I, I, I've been corrected by people and I, I bring that correction into the next video. So it's very much a community um, who's helping me really nail this thing down. Okay. Well, that's beautiful. So yeah. So for anyone that's interested in going deeper into your information, definitely check out the YouTube channel, A History of. Yeah. And I guess I always forget the the website, Frequency99.com, Frequency99.com, the nines are numbers. That's got links to all this stuff. That's the publisher website. I publish all my books through Frequency99 and it's got links to the podcast and stuff. Okay. Now, um, so, and the book, can they get it on Amazon or just through your website? Uh, yeah, either you can get it. You can get it anywhere. All this okay. stuff is anywhere. But yeah, Amazon. I like. I if P, if everyone bought from Amazon, then my rankings would be better. So yes. you know, yeah, it's doing okay. It, it was number one for a long time. I, I was ahead of Graham Hancock's latest book for like three weeks, but he's got staying power. Well, yeah, yeah, I know. But yeah, he's, I know. He's, 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 yeah. he's, he's a, a machine. Yeah. So yeah. Long term. 
Okay, well, so just in the last couple minutes that we have here, um, the thriller book series that you have, just because this may have nothing to do with this, but like, I'm just curious, and our audience, because you have all the books behind you, like what what is your thriller series about? Anything to do with this kind of paranormal or other kind of worldly experience? Or? Uh, only a little bit. So the thriller series is, um, it's set in 1988 in Panama which of course is when I was there. It's not, it's, there's no self insert. It's not a story about me. It's not a memoir or anything, um, but I do take, you know, write what you know. So I do take some of the experiences I had and all kinds of crazy stuff did happen. And then I crafted into, yeah, it's six books. Um, Panama Red, the first book uh, people really like a lot. Um, although they tell me it's a little gritty or dark and I was completely, I didn't think that's what it was. I thought it was just a fun adventure book. But so the second book I write called Dry, I called Dry Faster right here there where is it? there we go it's all backwards right here drive faster that book is much more just a chase you know because i wanted something fun so basically the first the odd number of books are deep and dark and then the even number of books are kind of fun and adventurous okay uh, and then in the uh in this book uh, prayer, prayer drum sorry prayer drum it's a fourth book i do bring in so there's this thing called the drum of god it's uh, from africa and it is an artifact. It's, it's a real artifact. And it's yeah. supposed to be a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. So theoretically, yeah. the Ark of the Covenant went down to Ethiopia. This drum of God thing then kind of moves its way over into the Congo and stuff. Um, so I said, well, okay, well, if there's one in Africa, maybe there's one in Central America. So the book, yeah. you know, it's a ch So I bring little tiny pieces of it in. Um, but they're, they're just they're straight up thrillers. Uh, and, and I call them pulp. You know, they're, they're not deep. They're just fun. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of stuff I like to read. It's escapism. Um, mm -hmm. good stories. Uh, and that's pretty much the reviews that I get. People say eh, it wasn't war and peace, but you know, <laughs> books, are, books are supposed to entertain and it entertained me yeah. and I'm not mad at it. And I like the characters, you know, so yeah, it's just, it's just kind of a fun rollicking book. So I've got okay. that. I've got a sci-fi series called earth 50,000 BC. Um, and then I have a, uh, a pseudo Western turn of the 19th to 20th century series of books called purgatory oaths. Um, mm -hmm. they're kind of paranormal. I, I tried to write them horror. But apparently I'm not very scary. Uh, so <laughs> apparently they're more paranormal than they are horror. Okay. Well, and the sci-fi one, like what are you based? Are you just completely creating this in your mind? Or no, you the, sci the sci-fi one would be if Dr. Lisa took her view of 50,000 years ago and projected it onto a screen with lights. Okay. So basically, here's the idea. The idea is whatever the asteroid belt is, that's not, that's still a planet. There's a civilization yeah. out there. It's called Maldek. <laughs> And well, actually, what, I, I call it Machi, is what I call okay. it. Machi. Okay. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Machi, no, Machi is a moon of the planet. I, oh, I call it uh, TTO. I made up. But Machi, because then eventually the planet is going to blow up, and then Machi's Mars. Yeah. It's, it's going to become Mars. It's, it's a moon of the thing right now. But okay. yeah, but it's cool. So I basically say, okay, let's pretend like our civilization, 50,000 years from now, it's all, you know, the internet's wired into our head. We can all talk to each other without talking. Robots mm -hmm. are everywhere. All that kind of stuff. And I said, that's the society. Then we get a group of them that has to go to this planet. Of course, it's Earth, but it's it, it's a mineral planet. And uh, great chaos ensues, right? Because they're, they're, they're unplugged from the uh, the interweb, basically. Uh, they call the ether. And then, you know, then bad things happen. And they discover that uh, what's really going on is that um, that there's an evil kind of shadow government and they're using all the citizens as food and they're sending them to the mining planet. Uh, but they're coming back basically sowing like green as people, you know, that kind of thing. But on a global scale, it's, it's, it, there's lots of robot fights and spaceships and lasers and all kinds of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, 
Well, and some of our viewers might actually be interested in that. So. Yeah, <laughs> I think well, the best review I got said, uh, said yeah, pretty good sci-fi. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and you write under your name, David Edward. David yes. Edward, yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, well, um, any final thoughts that you want to leave with our audience about Atlantis? Um, you know, yeah, no, I mean, I'll just, I'll, I want to plug the channel, go to a history of, or go to the frequency 99.com and then link to it. And if you got an opinion about it, um, oh, I'm going to be on coast to coast AM on Sunday night, which is a big show in this. You, you, you must be familiar with coast to coast AM. Yeah. I am. I'm, I'm ready to be on there. So maybe you can hook me up. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you what, I can give you the, the executive producer's contact information. Okay. That's, you know. Yes. Um, but yeah. But so yeah, if anyone uh, wants to watch that and call in, yeah, th there'll be a segment, at, two segments at the end where I get viewer questions. So, uh, and I'm I'm totally happy with if someone thinks that everything I've said is probably the stupidest stuff they've ever heard, and people look for Atlantis or idiots, and you want to call in and tell me that, please do. <laughs> it makes good, it makes for good radio. It does. Yeah. It does well, David. Thank you so much for being on the show today, and I wish you the best of success in all of the books that you're writing, and look forward to seeing what new research you're going to be doing um, for any other topics you might want to dive deep into. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank thank you very much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I, I think we'll stay in contact and see if we can't forge ahead in the yes. same direction going forward. Yeah, it's beautiful. And for those watching and listening, thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. On Connection to the Cosmos, aloha.